Ruth 4 and verse 13. But I'll tell you what we may do. Because we have several people who are visiting, we may just tell the story of the book of Ruth in particular to bring us up to that final point of Ruth 4 verse 13. It is going to be greatly abbreviated because we still want to speak about big picture how this book fits in to the overall portion of Scripture. As Scripture overall is going to emphasize uh, God as the kinsman redeemer and Christ as a kinsman redeemer, how do we look at this book in light of this? But let's just briefly review all that's happening here. Uh, but as the book opened, it was the days of the judges. And the Bible tells us that there is a famine in Bethlehem, in the house of bread. And as a result of this famine, there is a, uh, there is a departure of Elimelech and his wife Naomi from the land of Judah to the land of Moab. And the Bible tells us that they had two sons, Malon and Chilion. Now in the ten years that uh, Elimelech and Malon and Chilion are in the land of Moab, they will die. And Naomi is left alone. Her sons have married two Moabite girls by the name of Ruth and Orpah. And she hears in the land of Moab how the Lord has visited His people by giving them bread. And so as a result, the Lord has visited His people by giving them bread. She turns back to go to the land. The daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, accompany her. And she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you, and may you find rest in the house of a husband. They originally said, we'll go with you. But Naomi tries to talk them out of it. Why should you go with me? There's no hope for you to find husbands if you go with me. If I, if I had hope that I could have a child tonight, would you wait for them to be grown so that you could marry them? And uh, know this is more bitter for me, my daughters, and for you. Uh, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and says goodbye. But Ruth will not go. She said, Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God, my God. When she comes back to Bethlehem after being gone ten years, all the city is stirred. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. As, Na as, as Ruth 2 opens, Ruth asks Naomi, can I go out and glean? She happens to glean, of all places, in the field of Boaz. And as she gleans in the field of Boaz, uh, which seems an accident from a human perspective, but in the latter, uh, at the end of the book, we'll see it as providence. But Boaz comes back and greets his workers and asks about Ruth. And they said, this, this Moabite girl who came back from the land of Moab with Naomi has been here working all day and, and hasn't taken a break. 
And he goes up to her and tells her, I don't want you to leave my workers. I want you to stay and glean right here in my field. And I want you to go to the water jars when you are thirsty and to drink from them. And she bows before him and says, How have you taken notice of me since I am a foreigner? And he said, Because I have heard all that you have done and how you have left your mother and father in the land of your birth and came to a people you did not know previously. And you have sought shelter under the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to trust. She bows in appreciation, and Boaz asks her to eat with them and even tells his workers. If she gets a little ahead of herself, don't rebuke her and uh, make sure you miss some things so she can have a lot to carry back to her mother-in-law. At the end of the day, she carries back a lot. Naomi is thrilled. Naomi says, may he be blessed of the Lord who took notice of you. And Ruth says, it was Boaz. And said, he invited me to keep coming to his field. And she says, yes, stay in that field. It'll be safer than if you go somewhere else. It was the end of threshing season. Boaz, or Naomi knew that Boaz would be alone in the, uh, with, the, with the wheat, with the, with the barley and the wheat in the threshing floor. And uh, she says, I want you to dress and anoint yourself and you go uh, and you lie down at his feet. And when he, when he uh, wakes up and says, speaks to you, you say, spread the covering over your maid. Now that expression used in Ruth 3.9 is only used one other place. It's used in Ezekiel 16.8 and it's also in the context of marriage. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And by the way, it's the same word for wings back in Ruth 2.12 where under whose wings you've come to seek refuge, speaking of the Lord, and now she is finding refuge in, um, in Boaz. But he says, I am a near kinsman, but there's a kinsman nearer than I. And if he will not redeem you, I will. And she said, take these back to your mother-in-law. And he takes back uh, uh, six ephahs of barley. Now one commentary stated that that may have been as much as 66 pounds, excuse me, 88 pounds of grain. Now that is an amazing amount to provide her. And it also tells you uh, something important about looking for a wife. Uh, you want a wife who can carry a big load <laughs> like that. And, uh, but anyway, she carries this back to her mother-in-law. And uh, she says, her mother-in-law says, you just rest here because he will not rest until he's taken care of this matter. Now this is where we were last time. He goes up to the city gate. He sees the relative that is closer than he. He invites him to sit down. He invites ten elders of the city to sit down <coughs> and said, I want you to know that Naomi, who is our relative, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. And you have the right of redemption before me. And if you will not take it, I'm going to. And he said, I will redeem it. He said, I want you also to know that in the day you redeem the land, you also purchase Ruth the Moabitess to raise up a descendant on this territory. 
And uh, the text tells us that he says, I'm not able to do it, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Because he, now he's going to leave all this land to an heir. Before he thought, I'm going to get all this land, I'm going to pay a little price, I'm going to increase uh, my income. But when there's no advantage in it for himself, he abandons the project. The man removes his sandal and hands it to Boaz and says, this, um, this right of redemption is yours. The, city, the men of the city, the elders of the city witnessed this. They said, we're witnesses of this. And they, um, they pronounced blessings upon Boaz, upon Ruth, and upon this relationship that will exist. I also want to make a point. I, I said the other day, and a couple of you pointed out a mistake I'd made afterward that, that I said the other day that that Tamar was a Canaanite in Genesis 38. That's not specifically said. Judah's first wife was specifically said to be a Canaanite in Genesis 38 verses 2 and 3. And I kind of conflated uh, those two things. But, but let's read beginning with verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, one of the things we stated the other day is that the Lord is the one who is behind uh, having children. You see some reference to that in chapter 4, verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. All these verses indicate that. In verse 11, may the Lord make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. In verse 12, uh, may through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this woman. In verse 13, the Lord enabled her to conceive and give birth to a son. And then when she gave birth to a son, the women say, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer. So you see, the Lord is active in this in all of these cases. One writer says of verse 14 that the term Redeemer, the Lord has not left you without a Redeemer, seems to be a reference to the child. It's the only time in the Bible a child is specifically said to be a redeemer. Now, this child is going to fulfill that role. I know that role has been described, that, that role has described Boaz often in the book. Here it describes the child. And it says, May his name become famous in Israel. 
The other day, uh, and Brad asked me about this, when, when I was saying about his name becoming famous, but I, I wasn't meaning to imply all those references are exactly to Boaz. I, I think ultimately it's to the, to the whole clan, and especially to David, and then ultimately to Christ. But you notice a little expansion from verse 11 to verse 14. In verse 11, the, the statement, you may achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Famous in one town, in one city. But then in verse 14, being famous in Bethlehem has given way to his name becoming famous in Israel. For those of you that were here the other day, we focused on how central a name is in Ruth 4 and reminded you that the relative in Ruth 4 is unnamed. John Doe, as Ryan said, is a net translation. We want to come back to some of those phrases in verse 15 later. A restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age. Uh, we want to come back to some of those phrases. But Ruth and Naomi have given birth, or excuse me, Ruth and Boaz uh, have had a child. The child is named Obed. Uh, Obed is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And their genealogies are given in verses 18 through 22. When this genealogy is attached to the book, now, I don't think always a genealogy indicates there are no generation skin. But I'll tell you, you're going to be hard-pressed to say this is a made-up story when you got a genealogy attached to the back of it. It is attaching it to real historical characters uh, who really lived. The names involved, the generations of Perez, to Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram, to Ram Aminadab, to Aminadab was born Nation, to Nation Salmon, to Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. The, the key name in this genealogy, through the distressing days of the judges, God is working through this simple family to raise up a king in Israel and to raise up a savior for the world. There are going to be a couple of times in history that the family of David seems to be down to one man. You remember the story in 2 Kings 11 and 12 about Athaliah killing all the descendants of David and she was she'd lined them up and they had were killing them, but they'd taken one boy, Joash, who was one year old, and hidden him from her. He seems to be the only descendant of David left. There are a couple of times David's descendants become dangerously few, and God preserves them. But here, God is preserving their line even before it begins. God is preserving the house of David before it even started. Now, I want you to just look and see how these names appear in the New Testament in, in genealogies. Look in Matthew 1. In Matthew 1. In Matthew 1 verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, 
Zira by Tamar. That goes back to Ruth 4 verses 11 and 12. Perez was the father of Hezron, Ruth 4.18. Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's a new note. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. These names are not only in the genealogy of David, these names are in the genealogy of Jesus. A genealogy brings God's purpose for the ages in front of us. While there may seem to be no rhyme nor reason to history, God is carefully working to bring about this king in Israel and this Savior to the world. In Luke 3, you remember that Luke 3's genealogy is what is called a descending genealogy. It begins with Jesus and then goes down to uh, the ones uh, that were before him. But um, I think that is a descending and not considered an ascending genealogy. Uh, but the idea is it starts with the central character and then traces his genealogy backward. But look at Ruth or Luke 3 and verse um, 31. You see Nathan's or David's name mentioned. Then it says he was in verse 32, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Heres, Hezron, the son of Perez, and the son of Judah. So in both cases, you see this idea of, of these. this will eventually be a line that leads us to Jesus. Now, I, I recognize we didn't say much about those verses. We just read them. But any questions you got on the New Testament verses or anything at the end of Ruth? Anything there? Okay. One of the ideas of Ruth is that... Question. Yes, okay, Sarah. I knew I had one and I forgot it and then I remembered it. Okay. The women named him? Yes. Of the neighborhood was that unusual? <laughs> it's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. So yeah. So I would say it probably is unusual. And uh, but yes, it does. Um, it does say that here. It's usually the father or mother, of course, that is naming the child. But uh, but this is the only time you read it. So as far as we know, pretty unusual. Uh, one of the things that we talked about is Boaz fulfills this role of kinsman redeemer. And it is not a role, and I think I'm spelling that right. Okay, kinsman redeemer. It's not a role that we're generally familiar with. And, but this uh, Hebrew verb is used 22 times in the book. And it is used 105 times in the Old Testament. Now, first of all, let me ask you, from other passages, what did a kinsman redeemer do? Four basic responsibilities that I have in my notes of a kinsman redeemer. What would they be? 
One of them is if you sell yourself as a slave, they're supposed to buy you back. Okay. Uh, if you sell yourself as a slave, why do people do that? Often because of debt. And the near relative, the kinsman redeemer, could pay whatever it was that you owed and pay for your freedom. If you were a freed, if you were, you were said to be redeemed. You read of this in Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 49. What else? What else did a kinsman redeemer do? Isaiah? Avenger in blood. Okay, Avenger of Blood. Okay, y'all are going a little bit out of the order as open, but let's write it this way. All right, three. Avenger, I got four points. Avenger of Blood. And um, you see that in Numbers 35, verses 16 through 28 in particular. And what they did is avenge the death of a near relative. If there's a near relative who was killed, who was murdered, now they could go to the city of refuge. They ran to the city of refuge. Three cities of the refuge on this side of the Jordan. Three cities of refuge on this side of the Jordan. All of those cities of refuge in the southern part of the land, the central part of the land, the northern part of the land. The idea is wherever you were, you could go to one of these cities. You presented your case to the elders of the city. If they believed there was some kind of an accident, if you were out chopping wood, the axe head flew off, hit another guy in the head, who was your friend? Then you could stay in that city of refuge till a high priest died. Then you were free to leave. But if they regarded you as guilty of murder... And there are some reasons in Numbers 35 to distinguish between murder and an accidental death. Then they handed you over to the avenger of blood who ended up taking uh, your life. You also see references to this in Deuteronomy um, 19 verse 6 and verse 12. Now, anything else you read of in you sell yourself as a slave, which is actually the second point, that I had in order, but there's something earlier in the text in Leviticus 25. Uh, if you sell your inheritance. Yes, yes. Sell, sell your family land. Sell your family land. Now you see this, the reason I had that number one is because you encounter that first in the text before you do selling yourself as a slave. What prophet was told to go and to buy a piece of land to which he had the right of redemption. What prophet was told that? Is that? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 32 verses 6 through 15 you see that. Very interesting context. But, but it kind of, it, it, it just it doesn't, it doesn't tell us anything that surprises us but it gives us an illustration of this selling an ancestral piece of land. Now, you sell yourself, you sell, uh, the Redeemer... Have I written this up here in a way that is understandable? <laughs> buy, 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 yeah, this would probably be the word buy back. Okay, the word buy back is better. Buy back 
your family land, buy back. Brother. Yeah, buy back a, a brother from slavery. <laughs> okay? And uh, be avenger of blood for a near relative. Uh, now, a fourth responsibility we are told in the book of Ruth. We're not told in the law so much, but apparently also with it is what responsibility? Marry your brother's widow. Yeah, to marry, to marry the widow with no heir. Now that was talked about in the law. That was talked about in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, as Roman uh, explained to us a couple of weeks ago. It, it, it was talked about in the law, but in the book of Ruth, we see that responsibility is expanded. That it doesn't just apply to brothers dwelling together, but it also applies to other relatives who had this responsibility to raise up an heir to their relative who has passed away. Now, these are some of the places in the Bible that speak about that speak about uh, what a kinsman redeemer did. Now, particularly these first two incidents, Leviticus twenty-five. What is it about mainly? What is Leviticus twenty-five about? Leviticus twenty-five. The big context is talking about the year of jubilee which was every 49th or 50th year, even if you didn't have a redeemer to buy back your family land, if you lived in the countryside, you received that land back in the year of Jubilee. Even if you had no one to purchase your freedom from slavery, you were freed in the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, slaves were freed Debts were forgiven, slaves were freed, debts were forgiven, and you received back your family inheritance. All of those things have great significance. Now, the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they proclaimed the year of Jubilee, you proclaimed a year of release. Leviticus 25.10 The word that is used for the year of release is found 17 times in the New Testament. And you know how it is used. Every single time it is used it is translated in the New Testament Forgiveness. What I'm trying to say, I think all this picture of what happened in the year of Jubilee, what happens with a kinsman redeemer, as they are bought back, they buy back their family land that they were forced to sell. They buy back the brother who was forced to sell himself into slavery. But in the year of Jubilee, as debts were forgiven, 
and as slaves were freed, and as the as the land was given back to the family who originally owned it, all of these things are a foreshadowing of salvation in Christ. All of these things are a picture of the greater redemption that Christ gives. And so when you read the Old Testament and you read these things, these things are not disconnected from the new. Uh, They are ultimately fulfilled. And in the book of Revelation, um, you see Jesus often being pictured as the one who avenges the blood of the prophets and the saints that are shed. He avenges their blood. He will take care of those who are weak. Right now, do you have any questions or comments? Any thoughts right here? Now, in the Old Testament, sometimes God is referred to as Redeemer. You see that, for example, in Exodus 6.6 and Exodus 15.13 as it talks about the Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt. When God delivered the people from bondage in Egypt, it was an act of redemption. He was redeeming them. In Exodus 6, 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you, I will deliver you from their, from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. In Exodus 15, In verse 13, the Bible says, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. Whom you have redeemed. So what I'm trying to say, there was a near relative, a kinsman, who often did these things. And we see in the book of Ruth, he often acted in disregard of himself and often sacrificed himself. It was no easy job what Boaz is signing up for. Boaz is forfeiting perhaps some of his own wealth in order to establish this person's family. But in the Old Testament, as valuable as these people are, the ultimate Redeemer is God. The ultimate Redeemer is God. Now I want to just point out a couple of other passages that use this term Redeemer of God. In Job 19, in Job 19, I think this is a reference to God, though this is a disputed passage. In Job 19 verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, he will take his stand upon the earth. Those of us who are older recognize those words as the words of a song. I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me. But Job stated, I know that my Redeemer lives. In Psalm 19, 
Psalm 19, verse 14. A well-known verse. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. My Redeemer. In Psalm 78, verse 35. Not going to look at all the examples, but we're going to look at a couple. Psalm 78, verse 35. The Bible says, When they remembered that God was their rock, and the Most High was their Redeemer. But in the Old Testament, the book that most frequently uses the term Redeemer of God is the book of Isaiah. And particularly the latter part of the book of Isaiah. It uses the term of Redeemer of God quite frequently. Let me give you just about three illustrations uh, in Isaiah 41, Isaiah 41, verse 14, Do not fear, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 41, and verse 41, and verse 14. Speaks of the Lord as Redeemer. A look in uh, Isaiah 43 and verse 14. Isaiah 43, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent you to Babylon, and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. Isaiah 43:14 and then Isaiah 46, or excuse me, 44 verse 6 and 44 verse 24, those will be the last examples that we'll use, but there're over uh, there are over a dozen of these in Isaiah 44 verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, as his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. And verse 24 uses similar words. Now, when these passages in Isaiah particularly speak of God as Redeemer, what is being discussed? What is God going to do that is being described in context with God as Redeemer? What, what is it? Bring them out of captivity. Okay, what, what captivity? Babylon. Okay, Babylonian captivity. God redeemed them from Egypt. He redeemed them from Egyptian bondage. He delivered them from Egypt. He's going to deliver them from Babylonian captivity. And He is spoken of as the Redeemer. What I'm trying to stress here, as great as people like Boaz were, and as selfless and sacrificial as they were, they only foreshadow 
a greater Redeemer who can do things that no person can do. To illustrate that further, let's go back to Ruth 4. Go back to Ruth 4. When these women are praising God for the birth of this child to Ruth and that the Lord has not left Naomi without a Redeemer, they say in verse 15, May He be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. May He restore your life and sustain your old age. Now, let's look at this. Hey, Tommy, just, just real quick before you raise yes. this. Like you think about Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. Um, another word for captivity would be slavery. Yes, absolutely. Right? And when he brought them out, he bought them back from slavery and gave them back their land. Yeah, exactly. He does both of these points. He is, he is redeeming them from slavery and he is giving them back the land that he promised. He is also acting as a avenger of blood because he's going to bring judgment on the Babylonians who have judged his people. So very good, very good point. And even God says, the land will be Beulah. We sing about Beulah land. What's Beulah mean? Beautiful. I think it means married. I think it means married. Look, at, look, look that up. You know, the other day I... I I had, uh, I had Tamar Canaanite, so it could be wrong. But look in Isaiah 62, verses 2 through 4, I think that the, the, the term Beulah is a reference to uh, be married. But anyway, okay? Here in this passage, I'm running out of room. Where can I best write this? Okay? He is going to be to you in 415. It means married. Yeah. It, okay. Okay, good. Restore... A restorer of life. Now, it is true, and I saw this with my uh, grandmother in particular, uh, who lived to be 92, but she, when um, my uncle had a child, had a daughter, and uh, she was going to spend a lot of her days caring for her, that restored her life. It, it, it also wore her down. But it also restores her life. But there's a limit to what people can do in this regard, isn't there? You are familiar with another passage of Scripture which says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Do you know in Hebrew the same two words used here restore of life are the very words used in Psalm 23 translate restores my soul. Point is, 
these passages speaking of this child are speaking of things that the child, yes, does to some level, but these are things ultimately, ultimately, only God can do. God is the one who restores our soul. He restores our life. God is the one who do this. The point is, these passages about a human redeemer point to a greater redeemer. A greater redeemer in God when God sends His Son, Christ, to die for us. He is, and by the way, there's an interesting passage in Lamentations 1, verse 16. In Lamentations 1, 16, the Bible also uses these same two words that are used in Ruth 4.15, that are used in Psalm 23. And it says, For these things I weep, my eyes run down like water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. In Lamentations, when the people people go into Babylonian captivity. He is mourning. He is grieving that there's no one who restores his life, who restores his soul. And yet, God is going to act as the Redeemer who will restore his life. He's going to bring his people out of Babylonian captivity. You remember that picture in Ezekiel 37 where that valley of dry bones and Ezekiel starts preaching and the bones come together and flesh comes on the bones and and wind, spirit comes in these bones and they start to speak and they start to live. This is a picture of the people dead in captivity, hopeless in captivity, coming back life. God is the one who can restore their life. And God is also said to be in 415, and I realize I've got writing everywhere, God is one to see a sustainer of their old age. Their old age. Remember when Elijah is hiding from Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 4 and God commanded he commanded a raven he commanded the ravens to go and to provide for Elijah it's the same word sustain same word God is the ultimate sustainer isn't he God is the one that sustained Elijah God tells Elijah I have prepared a widow in Zarephath and she will provide for you. She will sustain you. This is what God did for Israel in the wilderness. Nehemiah 9, 21. The Bible says, Cast your burdens upon the Lord. He will sustain you. Psalm 55 and verse 22. And we see the same kind of idea in Psalm 112, verse 5. The point is, the ultimate restore of life. The ultimate sustainer is God. And so the ultimate redeemer is Christ. Christ is the ultimate redeemer. And his death is pictured as a uh, as, as paying the redemption price in Matthew 20 verse 28 just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many that word ransom means basically the price paid for redemption Christ paid the price and Christ 
is our Redeemer. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 6. You look at a lot of passages. Excuse me, Ephesians 1 verse 7. Ephesians 1 verse 7. And someone, when you get there to Ephesians 1 7, just read it for us, okay? Read it loud where everyone can hear. But Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption in Christ through the blood of Christ. Redemption is defined as forgiveness of sins. Now look in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, similar verse. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Um, someone read that. Anyone? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, very good. Both of those times, you see, redemption is defined as forgiveness of sins. I, I won't tell you, I, I don't mean to say this in an unfeeling way, because I, I, I did not grow up in a family with economic problems. I did not grow up in the richest of families, but I did not by any means grow up in a poor family. But I won't tell you, the need to sell your family land and have it purchased back, the need to have that land back, the need to be purchased out of slavery even. That slavery was not supposed to be severe, but you did have to work off your debt, basically. That need is not as profound as our need of forgiveness of sins. Now that's hard for me to accept sometimes. That's hard for other people to accept. That our greatest need is forgiveness. But through Jesus, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sin. How does that redemption come? It comes, as Ephesians 1 verse 7 said, through His blood. That's not specifically said in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, but that's the context of verses 15 through 22. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but as precious blood of a lamb without spot, without blemish. What these human redeemers could not do, Christ does and provides us with complete forgiveness. So this book of Ruth, not an accident. It, it's not just a good, nice story. It is a powerful story. But it fits into the big picture of the Bible. If we can appreciate Ruth sacrificing all to go back with her grandmother, or excuse me, mother-in-law. A bigger sacrifice. Mother-in-law. But, but um, if we can appreciate that, if we can appreciate Boaz being willing to risk himself, how much more should we stand in awe of Jesus and what He has given and what He has done for our redemption? Being a redeemer was often costly. 
and you particularly see this in his case. What other thoughts do you all have or ideas? I, I think it's it, that is so important because so often we are touched by things that happen in human lives and we don't think as deeply as we need to think about what yes. Jesus has done for us. All these things are a, should make us appreciate that much more Christ. And did, Andrew, did you have your hand up? Or are you stretching? I was just kind of wondering, like in what case, why would, like if Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, why, how does this play into his, his dying, like his death? Why would he have to die? As our kinsman redeemer, is there something that I, I think it's because of what we owed, the penalty of sin, and for for God, because that is our debt from which we have to be purchased, and all of it highlights the depth of our need, and shows us the magnitude of His mercy and grace that He was will what the awesome price He was willing to pay. For our redemption. Now, all those passages tie redemption, like Ephesians 1 7, uh, tied redemption specifically to the cross. Uh, so does Romans 3 24, for example. So does 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. But it's because of the debt of sin that we owe that apparently there is no other way to provide salvation. You know, when Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And it's, it, it doesn't pass. If, if you need to, if I, did, if I didn't answer that well, you can feel free to ask afterwards because I know you won't be here next time. Brad, did um, you? I just want to tie in the idea of during the time of the judges. You know, we talked about the cycle that um, people cried out and they needed a deliverer. So in the backdrop of God raising up physical deliverers, he quietly raises up a maternal spiritual deliverer. The statement there was no king in Israel and every man did what's right in his own eyes is not ultimately to point us to the human king, David, but ultimately beyond that. Because even at David's time, his time ends with civil war and rape and a lot of the same thing. It ultimately points us to a greater savior and a greater king, Jesus. Very good. Very good summary. Thank you guys. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. God bless.